Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. When a culture comes to an end, we still have traces of that culture on the table, for its cooking can survive when the rest of that culture is lost. As the food historian Claudia Roden notes, cooking and sharing food is a profound indicator of our humanity. We think much more about what we eat now than we used to, and we worry increasingly about how food production is affecting our planet. On a more everyday level, football clubs and top athletes in general employ nutritionists to try and get the best out of their performance. Rules about dietary restrictions and the preparation of food are, of course, set out in most of the world's religions. Here's Claudia Roden speaking on the Wolf Institute podcast Encounter about a Ramadan dish she loves called Harira. I was in Marrakesh at um, the time of Ramadan and I remember the smell of the soup in all the streets. And what it is, it's a very... Thick, rich soup because, of course, the people have fasted all day and they're terribly hungry, and and this is something that is going to start. They'll eat many more things. They ha- eat much more. They have a big banquet almost, but they start with this soup, and it has meat, onions, chickpeas, large brown lentils, tomatoes, celery, and it's got lots of flavour saffron, ginger, cinnamon, and there is a velvety touch, they say, at the end. And it's really because they make it sort of a yeasty batter that they mix in. So it makes it nice and rich. And when they serve it, they put a bit of lemon. Mmm, yum, yum. With me to discuss food, glorious food, and all its ramifications are Dr. Atif Imtiaz, a Muslim scholar with an interest in behavioural sciences and author of Wandering Lonely in a Crowd, Emma Garnett, a PhD student here at the University of Cambridge, and Dr. Tobias Muller, a researcher at the Wolf Institute. 
Atif, I'm going to start with you because that, you know, very tasty recipe makes me kind of rethink Ramadan when I think you just, Muslims just don't eat and suffer. Well, um, that's true. And what's happened is in Ramadan, you spend, you know, all day fasting and then it ends with this feast. So uh, it becomes like feasting and fasting for a whole month. And I think part of that is that Ramadan is this time in the year when everything kind of slows down and what you would normally do as a matter of, you know, without thinking about it, here you stop to think whether it's, you know, going into a shop to buy chocolate or going into a coffee shop to get some coffee, you have to stop and think. And that just changes your relationship with food. And so your day becomes slower and then at the end it kind of speeds up again with this feast. And there's no religious obligation for the feast. I think it's something that's culturally developed over the years. And I think, reflecting on it, I think the reason why they do that is to make up for the fast, you know, that you enjoy the feast, especially as families, you know, with the kids and, you know, families around the table, that there's something really nice to look forward to after a long fast. And yet at summertime, I know from experience having Muslims live with us that getting up very early in the morning or or eating very late at night is is particularly difficult. It is um, in in Ramadan is according to the lunar calendar, and so it you know shifts throughout the year. And in these past few years, it's been in the summer months, which has meant that the fasts have been nineteen hours without any food or drink on a daily basis for thirty days, which. You know, as the month approaches, you know, you do have this sense of uh, trepidation, you know. But it's amazing how the body adjusts. It just physically adjusts to this regime of fasting. And the first two, three days are quite hard. In fact, the hardest thing is not drinking tea and coffee because you get used to the caffeine. And then when you're not having tea or coffee, you start getting headaches. So in the first few days, you get really strong headaches from not having tea or coffee and not from not eating food. Um, but then uh, once the you know body kicks in, day four, day five, you're just in regime for the next 25 days. Tobias, you're somebody who's moved from being a meat eater to a vegetarian and now a vegan. Well, th- that's, uh, it feels great. Um, I feel very healthy and happy. And uh, I, most of the time, actually, now I'm not thinking that much about it anymore. So in the beginning, when you make the transition, that is when kind of the big social upheaval happens as well. When you rock up at your mom's kitchen telling her, I don't want to eat meat anymore. So that is a big shift. And then you start uh, talking to people about it. Um, and uh, once you actually establish that, the funny thing is that a lot of people uh, would take care more about my uh, take care of more about my veganism than actually I do. Um, um, sometimes so they'd say well there's a tiny tiny bit of butter maybe there at the very end and they say, well don't you worry that much so other people kind of take on that role almost of taking care of my dietary requirements which is really nice of them <laughs> kind of vegan policeman or woman yeah of course that is the other um, um, thing I don't know whether in the Islamic context you've uh, experienced that as well but sometimes when you kind of lapse or allow yourself uh, maybe to eat something then other people would uh, often like jump in and say ah you're not really taking taking this seriously see what you're doing here so other people kind of become uh, uh, yeah, a police basically for what you're eating sometimes <laughs> your work emma looks at the environmental impact of food tell us a bit about that 
the production of food has changed our planet more than probably any other human activity. And there's a huge spectrum of environmental impacts from different food groups. And generally speaking, a more plant-based diet will have lower climate footprint, lower water footprint, advantages as well for reducing animal suffering and also antibiotic use in the livestock industry as well. But interesting what Tobias was saying about people watching each other and possibly in a helpful way, but possibly in a, well, you messed up, didn't you? You're not perfect either way. Um, criticizing each other's food habits and I think what I took from um, both of your observations is the benefits of being quite mindful of what you're eating and not necessarily about being perfect but uh, not having tea or coffee throughout the day I find myself snacking very mindlessly and I don't really stop and think about it when you look and see how many different animal products uh, we can get through within a week and thinking do I really need this is this good for me is this good for the planet and pausing and stopping and thinking, right, okay, what do I want to put into my body? But that we don't have to be uh, completely perfect all of the time. Could you give some example of the impact on our planet of some of the food that we often eat? So in the UK, we eat twice as much beef as the global average. And you know, cows are wonderful and interesting creatures. But unfortunately, as they break down grass, they're releasing methane, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas. Grass is also not very nutritious um, for us and nor for cows. And because of that, you need a much larger land area to grow uh grass-fed cows sheep goats and if we have a global population eating a lot of beef that requires a lot of land a lot of deforestation uh, which itself releases uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and if you compare that to beans and pulses which have take up a much smaller amount of land aren't releasing methane they can make their own fertilizer the nitrogen fixing they have such a smaller footprint compared to uh, beef uh, and other sorts of meat and Atif, as a, as a Muslim who observes halal and the certain customs with that, where are the Muslim community in terms of attitudes towards food? I think um, attitudes in the community towards meat in particular are changing. Um, there's a strong emphasis on um, the meat being halal, which means it needs to be sacrificed in a certain way. But the Quranic verse which mentions halal also follows it with another word, which is tayyib, which means it should be good. And there's a real discussion in the community, like, what do we mean by this? What is, you know, goodness in relation to meat? And a lot of that is coming down to exactly what um, Emma has just been mentioning. You know, how has the animal been raised? How has the animal been treated? How has the meat been prepared? Etc. So even though we're in a situation now, so the people who are in the UK are people who are children of um, people who came from India and Pakistan who are living in villages and they would have hardly ever eaten meat it would be like once a month or you know once every few weeks it wasn't that common in the diet but now meat is very common in the diet it's three four times a week so we've kind of gone over the top in the opposite direction and there's a real discussion now in within my generation in the community in general which is i think we're eating too much meat and we need to kind of cut down on this a bit there's also controversy about the slaughter of animals isn't there um in the um in both Islam and Judaism, and the religious slaughter of animals, is that um, also a concern or is that just um, hyped up? Um, you mean within the community or within the UK as well? Within the UK. Within the UK, there is clearly some concern around the way animals are slaughtered. Um, and that has led to a professionalization in standards uh, amongst the halal abattoirs. Um, and there are a variety of uh, people who are in that industry 
And that's, again, something that Muslims are very concerned about, that they want to try and make sure that the meat that they get has been slaughtered in the best possible way. And in the halal method, there is an emphasis on causing the least amount of pain as possible to the animal. And we do know that because of producing so many chickens, so many lambs, that that tends to get forgotten sometimes. So um, especially in regards to chicken, which is much more industrialized than, say, lamb, there are there is a lot of you know concern in the community. I know I've I've got friends who just want chicken in in the UK because they're so concerned about the way it's been prepared. I tend to focus more on the environmental point of view, but I think it's a really interesting trade-off that. Uh, from an environmental perspective, cattle and sheep have the worst environmental impact on most metrics. If you're looking at welfare, antibiotic use, and diseases transmitting between people and animals, then industrially raised chicken and pork is a huge issue. And the number of chickens worldwide has uh, absolutely skyrocketed. It's in the billions each year. And that's going to be hard to make sure each chicken has a decent quality of life. I'm not sure that's possible with that many billion. Yeah, and I think that's also an interesting uh, part of the debate. So, uh, first of all, um, responding to what Atif just said, uh, that I think in Europe particularly, uh, Muslims often, I think, are singled out as those that do these things to the animals that are not quite right. So I think actually this is one of the key arguments of Islamophobes and the extreme right of criticizing Muslims and saying, look at what they're doing to our animals. Just one anecdote, when I conducted fieldwork in Munich, actually one of the far right's Pegida group, they put up massive uh, screens in the pedestrian area in the city center showing allegedly kind of suffering, dying calves, basically. Um, And showing thereby in their understanding how cruel Muslims are to animals. Now, if we look at the cruelty that is exercised on animals um, in Germany or in Europe, of course, the absolute vast majority is from agri- mass agricultural uh, farming, the agro-industry, really. And like, no matter what the Muslims would do, uh, that would be a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of what actually the mainstream society, everybody is uh, doing and is consuming. So I think there's a lot of um, double standards actually involved. And I think it's really important to uh, be careful when these arguments are actually instrumentalized to target the Muslim community. And associated with that also, I find um, coming back to your point, Emma, is the question of, of what is natural. And you mentioned that, like, it is not natural ever in human history that uh, people eat meat all the time. That that just never happened apart from the probably very richest 1%. Um, so this idea that uh, now there needs to be a meat dish every day is a really recent one, I think. So sometimes coming actually back to our historical roots and understand how historically also food has evolved. And maybe the example of kind of the Pakistani farmer is really instructive there. It's the same for the British farmer, really. Um, um, it's really helpful to rethink how we actually want our uh, food consumptions to be. Let's take a pause between courses. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Atif Imtiaz, Emma Garnett, and Tobias Muller. At this time of climate emergency, what we eat is coming increasingly under scrutiny, as Tim Revel explained to Chris Smith on the Naked Scientist podcast. Well, we've been testing out the idea that going vegan 
improves your carbon footprint, reduces the amount of CO2 you are responsible for. And uh, some of us did an experiment in the office where we recorded everything we ate laboriously for, for a week. And then the following week, everyone went vegan and recorded everything they ate too. And then a, uh, a specialist analysed everything we'd eaten and looked at how our carbon footprint was affected. How does that actually work? Why would going vegan translate into a superior carbon footprint for a person who's normally a meat eater? So there are certain foods that uh, when you look at how they are produced, how much food, for example, it goes into making them. So beef, for example, you have to feed a cow and then ultimately you kill that cow to eat the meat. Things like milk, you also have to keep a cow alive. All of those correspond to energy that goes into producing that food. And some foods are more heavy in terms of the energy you need than others. Emma, do you agree? Yes, I would. And I think it's fantastic that more of us are becoming more mindful of what we're eating and the effects it has on the planet. In the UK, even though we've eaten a lot of meat historically over the last few decades, that uh, there are more of us on the planet, there are more farmed animals on the planet, and that a safe climate has to absolutely take precedence over our preferences for beef burger compared to bean burger. So... Tell me a little bit about your research. I was interested to learn about your work in cafeterias, for example, nudging people into eating better food. Yes, I've enjoyed carrying out my research very much. And I think what is underlined is that the kind of social and physical environment we're surrounded by really matters for food choices. So on my most recently published piece of work, we were finding that in cafeterias, when you had proportionally more vegetarian options, the students would be more likely to pick them, even those that tended to avoid vegetarian food uh, in their normal day-to-day lives, and even those who were more predisposed, like Tobias, <laughs> towards more vegetarian food, were more likely to pick one. Which makes sense, because if you think, if you're going to a cafeteria, and there's four options, and one's vegetarian, and it, maybe it's a disappointing mushroom risotto. Mushroom risotto is the always. bane. <laughs> always risotto. It's always, always, risotto. it's always mushroom risotto. Like Similarly priced to sort of a full Sunday roast in many pubs. It's one of my bugbears. It drives me bananas. And you think, well, I don't, I don't like risotto or I don't like mushrooms or it doesn't look very appetising. And I'll go for this chicken dish or this beef dish. That looks a bit better. But if you're going into a cafeteria and two or three of the options are vegetarian and you think, well, I don't like mushroom risotto, but oh, that black bean chilli looks delicious. And you've got more choice to pick things that you like the taste of. And I wonder also, and we don't know, but is this sending a kind of signal of a social norm that this vegetarian meal is not an afterthought, that more options have been provided? This is something the chefs are considering. And that if you're picking a vegetarian option, that doesn't make you abnormal or weird within the university context culture, that this is more permissible. Other people are doing it. Tobias, you're undertaking research in the strictly orthodox communities, Jews, Christians and Muslims here in the UK. What are the attitudes towards food? Are they shifting at all or is it just strictly kosher, strictly halal and and, and I don't know what the term is for Christians, but enlighten us. Well, thinking about Christians just now actually happening on Parliament Square every day in Lent, um, people are fasting, a prayer fasting for the climate, Um, something uh, different faith groups coming together, Buddhists, people from Extinction Rebellion and so on, to make the point that food is political and particularly meat is political. It is not just an individual choice. It always has been a social norm and convention, but also because of the incredible impacts it has globally and the way we in the UK uh, eat is unsustainable if everybody in the world did the same thing. So we're actually exercising a privilege that would is globally definitely already unfair and unjust. So food is political. 
of course, there are communities who try to uh, negotiate that question and have instituted uh, different kinds of norms. And just on Saturday, I um, had the pleasure to be in the home of a um, Haredi um, Orthodox Jew. And he explained to me, uh, I think for the first time, me really understanding how minute the regulation actually of different types of food Um, in terms of uh, the nutrition, but also in terms of the preparation can be. And he told me uh, how pervasive really the regulation is uh, when it comes to obviously separating um, milk from meat dishes, but also just putting uh, a knife that at some point has cut uh, either an onion or a a lime and later on meat or something in the dishwasher, which could really taint or pollute uh, your whole uh, crockery, actually. Could could those traditions have um, any medical context i mean for example shellfish um, and pork uh, are known to being slightly dirty animals you can pick up food poisoning so i know shellfish in judaism is is not allowed i I think in islam it is allowed but certainly pork isn't is there is there a medical background to all of this well for pork being uh, forbidden you know there's no um uh, explanation given in, in the Quran or sacred sources as to why it's been forbidden. It's just been forbidden. And sometimes some scholars have said, well, this is because, um, you know, pork has carried more disease than, say, other types of meat. Um, but we don't know specifically as to why it's been um, forbidden. What people say is it's a permanent fast, you know, so whereas you fast in Ramadan from other, um, from all forms of food, for pork is just a permanent fast. And there is, you know, around cleanliness and hygiene, there's a lot of um, discussion and um, uh, exhortation in Islamic teaching in general, and also around, you know, food and how food should be treated, food should be eaten, etc. There's lots of discussion around how you should sit when eating food, um, cleaning the plate, making sure none of it's um, left, um, you know, to to waste, etc. It's a story of a prominent Indian scholar, uh, hadith scholar Zakaria Khandavi, he was walking with his disciples in, in India. He saw some watermelon on the floor, and uh, it, it, like half of it had been eaten, half had been left. And he's a very prominent, big scholar, so respected. And he walked up to it, picked it up, dusted it, and started eating it. And his students said, What are you doing? It's off the floor, it's dirty, it's, you know, in India. And so uh, he said, No, it's, this is food, somebody's wasting it, and we should not, you know, waste the food. So there's also an understanding that. So there's a whole kind of culture around food preparation, food usage, and also not wasting whatever food there is, that the plate should be clean, etc. I think that's really interesting. And the, how do we maintain food hygiene whilst also not wasting food? And that reminded me slightly of the three-second rule of if food's been on the ground for not that long, then it's <laughs> fine. Though that was a much better and more scholarly anecdote. Sure, sure. <laughs> I thought it was interesting about um, pigs, and I think we could easily have a whole podcast about the cultural and nutritional significance of pigs and bacon and pork, and that uh, quite possibly avoiding food poisoning reasons that various religious texts say avoid avoid pork. And what Tobias was saying about that it's so easy to look at what other cultures different from ours do to animals and say well that's cruel what they're doing people over there and just ignore what we do and I think uh, pig farming is a very good example of that and pigs are about as intelligent as dogs and most people in the UK um, who are eating pork wouldn't think much of a bacon sandwich and yet are horrified at dog eating festivals in other parts of the world or horrified at halal meat and but we're conveniently blind sort of um, Christian British people to what we might do to pigs so I think again the sort of being more mindful and what can other cultures and practices teach us 
um, about compassion towards other beings. Religions also offer some restrictions of what foods we eat, don't they? Yes, and I think that's interesting in the overlap in, uh, from what Atif was saying about uh, Muslims avoiding uh, pork and that within, I believe, many major world religions, there's some sort of restriction on animal product consumption. So in the, um, many Hindus and Buddhists are vegetarian and in Christianity, having fish on Fridays instead of meat is one example. Also in Lent is traditionally a period to cut back on meat and rich food consumption. And as we already mentioned, sort of in the Jewish faith, avoiding pork and shellfish. And I'm sure there's many other examples that uh, the three of you (laughs) can think of. In Islam, we have an understanding that not only is the food, should the food be halal, but the way it's prepared, what kind of food it is, when we digest it, it becomes part of us spiritually as well. And so you'll find people who are on some, some kind of spiritual path. They'll be careful about where they eat because the chef and his spiritual state will come through the food to them. So they're even kind of careful about things like that. So there are some people you know, who live like that as well. Yeah. I won't be able to eat the same way at it. <laughs> Reflecting on where our food comes from, um, it will become increasingly important as generations become more and more alienated from the actual uh, process of producing them because they don't have grandparents anymore that can tell them how the farming uh, was was working so i think really reflecting on every step of the um, supply chain but also on the respective shops actually where we buy so are these high street uh, um, shops that um, are massively monopolized and therefore are much more likely to buy um, from these industrialized uh, um, size uh, farms or do we have small, ecological, cooperative, democratically organized shops where people really can decide as well um, what uh, type of food um, do we want and where do we want to source it from. How do we normalize it, though? Because it's all well and good talking about democratization of food. But for the ordinary person for whom, you know, there's a limited budget that they have and there's a limited distance that they will go, how do we normalize the uh, food production and the eating of food in a, in a more civilized and 21st century way? If we're talking about moving towards a more plant-based diet for everyone's welfare... I think one of the things it has to start with is the training of chefs and that in, um, again, I think in white British culture, there's still the leftovers of you have meat and two veg. And that's what many of us are familiar with. And that so much British pub food, much of it is delicious, but a lot of it is some sort of dead animal and some sort of potato. You've got fish and chips, bangers and mash, beef and potatoes. I, I could go on. And so having cuisine, which I think is um, influenced from lots of different cultures around the world, uh, is often very interesting and rich and varied and more plant-based. So uh, Indian cuisine is delicious and full of different beans, which are high in protein, high in fiber, low in fat. Um, if I had to give everyone one takeaway from my thoughts on this podcast, it would be just everyone eat, eat more beans, eat more legumes, <laughs> have a diet more like uh, India and these parts of the world. In South America, there's a very strong meat culture, like huge chunks of barbecue meat. But again, there's also a lot of like black bean chilies and tortillas like, across sort of Latin America as well. So I think um, embracing different ways of eating and making sure that people who are preparing food for our schools, our hospitals, our prisons, for all of us, our universities, that they have the, the knowledge and the know-how to produce food that's tasty and nutritious and treads a bit lighter on the planet. I echo all of that, um, treads a bit lighter on the planet, is similar to a chronic verse, 
which is uh, the slaves of the merciful walk gently on the earth. That's beautiful. Yeah, so we're all trying to do that. And I think eating less meat would be, you know, really important. And I think the, in the Muslim community, there's a debate and some some people are certainly trying to live like that. But we do have, you know, if I'm to be honest, if you go in many parts of the country where there's large Muslim populations, there's lots of eateries which provide, you know, burgers and um, you know, all kinds of uh, meat-based products. So we're, we're a long way from that, but certainly the discussion is happening. One interesting element I also find that when it comes to food, we just don't listen to scientists, it seemed to be the case. So uh, recently now on the coronavirus uh, discussions, I've seen an interesting post, which is basically about coronavirus. Scientists say, do wash your hand 20 seconds. And people's responses is, I will stay at home. I will stop going on holidays. I will completely change the way I live. When scientists also say um, climate change is really wrecking up our planet and millions of people are about to die. Um, we really need to rethink our economy and the way we live. People say, no way, this is part of my culture. This is part of who I am. And just that discrepancy seems to be quite striking. So I think uh, maybe also listen to the scientists uh, like Emma actually would make a lot of sense. <laughs> Maybe we can end by a reflection on the question of communal eating. Um, because in today's society, so many of us are eating on our own, um, maybe in front of our screen of one type or another. Um, but is there, is, is there something that we can learn, not just from the diversity of the food, of, as, as you've suggested, Emma, um, and reflection on the way animals are slaughtered, as you've suggested, Tobias, but in terms of that food as a means of Uh, of gathering, a means of community, even even a means of, of interfaith dialogue. Yeah, I mean, there is now a, a project in the UK called um, the Big Iftar or Open Iftar, um, which is, um, Iftar is when people break their fast. So many mosques around the country now will have uh, one day in the month where they'll invite everyone around them to join them at that moment of, you know, um, opening the fast. And... Uh, That that notion of sharing food is is, is very important in, in, in Muslim culture, and uh, it does help to bring people together. It does provide a space for conversation where people can open up and ask the questions that they may want to ask, you know, from their neighbors, etc. So yes, it's a very important part of the way we should be living together. Emma, I completely agree, and I think food uh, is a fantastic thing and it's very easy when we're thinking about sustainability and health that food can, it can feel very restrictive it can feel boring or kind of dogmatic and that um, rather than something to celebrate and something that kind of brings us together and food is such an important part I think of us being social animals and I think that making and sharing food with someone I think is a very uh, certainly how I kind of express affection like I like you I love you I've made you this food I've always found, Tobias, as a teacher, that offering my students some food makes them turn up quite enthusiastically for class. But what about you? Just introducing this different layer of humanity, of, of our human being and of our bodies, and recognizing that we are not just minds, but we are bodies and uh, we need to take uh, care of them. And that is important. I think that is something that can be introduced through food, which is why a lot of interfaith initiatives, for instance, are food-based. And I can just uh, reiterate really what um, Atif said. I had my most amazing encounters with people just randomly during Ramadan walking into mosques and saying, hi, I'm Toby, can I eat here? And I've really had incredible uh, um, experiences of hospitality. Well, that's a prophetic critique with which to end this podcast. So thank you to my guests, Atif Imtiaz, Emma Garnett and Tobias Muller.
And thanks to you two for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback, or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you find your podcasts or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Bill, please, waiter. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.